0: All right. Well, we are here in the studio and we are doing a kind of a collaborative episode today in the Philippi Conversations podcast. And I'm really excited and blessed to have Pastor Paul here in the studio uh, with us. Pastor Paul, say what's up. Hey, thanks Thanks. for having me. No problem. So uh, just a little bit of background. So For those of you that that know or don't know, uh, we are a um, church plant that was sent out by an existing church uh, called Heritage, and Heritage continues to be a partnering church and continues to be a covering in many ways for us. And Paul is the new lead pastor there at Heritage as of what, it's been like three months, something like that. So, So pretty new, pretty fresh. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to, to get together and sit down and just get to know each other a little bit um, and, and just get into the gospel and get into ministry and wherever the conversation leads. Um, we actually had a podcast scheduled to talk about the book of Genesis in different creation views. Um, but the guy that we were going to bring in that actually knows what he's talking about couldn't be here. So we weren't brave enough to do it without him. Nope. So we thought, well, Let's just talk about stuff we know about, which is the gospel in and Jesus, and, and we can go from there. But anyways, Paul, give us a snapshot a little bit, man. So you just moved out here from uh, Milwaukee, right? Yep. And, and man, that's a big change for you. Uh, maybe give us uh, a reader's digest of sort of how you got to where you're at, what, what the Lord did in leading you out to pastor at Heritage in Medford. And, uh, yeah, just bring us up to speed and all that.
1: Yeah, in, in, in 30 seconds or less. Yes, so I, I ministry was not going to be a thing for me. That wasn't. It was a second career. So after I had a career in education, it was through the process of coaching and teaching that I, I felt a call into into uh, ministry, started working with students, became a youth pastor when I was 27 at an evangelical free church in Wisconsin. My wife and I were living in Idaho when we sensed this call. She originally hailed from Wisconsin. So, you know, 19, 20 years ago, we moved with one kid at the time we moved to Wisconsin where I started student ministry, uh, loved it, uh, challenging, you know, working, uh, in a church in a smaller community, uh, through the process, I had a chance to work and sit under some corrupt, uh, some broken leadership, unfortunately. And, and when, uh, the gentleman who was my boss, he failed out of ministry. I was just a young guy. I was like 31. I was asked to become the, the senior pastor of this church and I didn't have any, uh, no business taking that, that position, but, God had me in that position, and, and I served there for five years, and after about five years, it was, it was comfortable, and the church had grown, and I kind of had the corner office, had a great staff. It was a really, really comfortable life in the little Norman Rockwell-esque community, and it was great, but I was just bored, and I was unsettled, and I couldn't figure out why I was bored and unsettled, questioning my calling into ministry even when I was like 36, because I didn't know what was going on. It was just like a holy discontent. I wasn't really sharing it with anybody. My wife was sensing the same thing. She's journaling about it. I'm journaling about it, wondering, well, God, what is going on? Like, I have no reason to feel this way. Mm -hmm. Out of the blue, I got this uh, unsolicited email on September 27th, 2011 from a church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, an urban church. And they uh, were one church, one location. They had outgrown their space, but they didn't want to leave because they were in a really rich neighborhood that was yielding lots of gospel fruit. So the idea for this church was to go multi-site. And so they needed a, a, a guy to plant a second campus through a whole series of weird circumstances. The, the pastor of that church knew who I was, reached out and said, I know you're not looking for a job. I know it doesn't make sense for you to leave a job as a senior pastor to come plant a campus, but there's a great opportunity for gospel ministry. So Becky and I, I mean, I, didn't, I had zero, zero desire to live in a metropolitan area from a small town in Montana. I was living in a small town at the time I drove down in Milwaukee. It just was huge and bustling, and a mil, you know, almost two million people in the metro area, and it felt overwhelming. And I was looking at the location of the church, very urban, and I just felt like I was so underqualified. Uh, and I told I've told the story often, but it was when I was sitting outside the building. It was an old movie theater, considering whether or not I was supposed to go to Milwaukee. I was looking at the faces of the people in the cars in the neighborhood on 63rd and Greenfield in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and there was more non-white faces than white faces. And I'd never considered the idea that God had sem- assembled the nations in the city, and there's opportunity for multi-ethnic, cross-cultural mission in a neighborhood. And It was just like revolutionary to me. So that was a part of what allowed me to kind of s- consider the position to say yes. We moved down, uh, planted uh, a, a campus that became its own uh, kind of its own campus. It kind of ended up becoming the hub of the ministry after a while. It grew really, really rapidly. Um, And we did that for nine years and uh, super fruitful, super awesome. Uh, Every day I was in Milwaukee, I was stretched, I was challenged, I I was blessed to work with amazing people. Got to watch God do just incredible things of bringing people from um, uh, uh, super affluent, you know, seven figure a year, uh, white collar professionals and homeless people literally in the same aisle in my church wow. uh, uh we uh, people from every tribe tongue language and people group young old it was the most beautifully diverse body of believers stretched me in every way i was uh, massively underqualified and under equipped to, to do it but god was patient the church was patient we grew and god did some amazing things and, and but i knew moving to milwaukee in 2012 that it was uh, that it was a season my dna is one that's not going to survive in a metropolitan area and so honestly, from the second, really, I moved to Wisconsin, you know, 20 years earlier, I knew that my desire was to be back in the West at some point when God would have that. And so that's always been on the back burner. Milwaukee for nine years, church was growing, doing a crazy ministry. Um, slow leak in my soul, living in a, a metropolitan area is very difficult for me. I mean, the ministry was rich. The friendships were profoundly rich. The, the fruit was amazing. There was I was slowly dying. And that's not an overstatement. I was just slowly dying on the inside, knowing that that I just... I wasn't meant to be there forever. And you know, you, you, you put into the mix, um, a very, very painful event for our family that happened about a year and a half ago. And, uh, and then COVID those two things caused me to step back and say, Lord is now the time. Mm. And I was on the internet one night and, uh, looking, uh, my brother-in-law and I, we'd always look at the Gospel coalition and look at different websites we' were always dream he's a pastor we talked about that and different guys that we mentor looking for positions for them and through a series of weird circumstances, I found the heritage uh, job site you know looking for this position if I, I pass over it a couple times, but ultimately I clicked on the I clicked on the website, saw the core values of heritage saw Medford, Oregon and I'm thinking my dad was born in Medford, Oregon in nineteen forty six so there's this weird connection here so i I allowed myself to consider. Would God be moving me from my church in Milwaukee? And that began a process that led us here in October.
0: Wow. I didn't realize your dad was born in Medford. Yeah. That's He, cool. he was on He was
1: raised, His family had a, a dairy farm in Williams. Wow. And then he was born here in 46. And like in the 50s, they moved to Montana where I was raised.
0: Crazy, man. Okay. Yeah. And you're a mountain guy. Like you're like a backpacking camping man after my own heart in that way
1: yeah you, do you remember the interview question you asked me when i was interviewing
0: i do it was the most important question i <laughs> said to paul in, around the table uh you and your wife i said this is the most important question is are you a, a hammocker or a tent camper <laughs> and you said the right answer i said
1: hammock you said hire him it was awesome hire
0: him dude anybody that yeah yeah it's all about the hammock you know the thing about a hammock it's 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 like your little baby hanging and you're just getting a hug from your hammock mm-hmm. all night long and if you have a down under quilt Oh, that's great. It's like a warm hug just all night. It's it's the best.
1: And you get the fresh breezes across your face. You can look around. You don't have to worry about <sighs> finding a flat spot. It's awesome. That's the best.
0: So one of the things you brought up that I thought might be interesting to talk about, um, you know, you and I could sit here and we could talk about ministry and pastoring, and that would probably be interesting for pastors. But um, considering most people that, that listen aren't, aren't necessarily uh, pastors, um, you lived in Milwaukee. Yeah. And Milwaukee is uh, highly multi-ethnic, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of black, a lot of white. And it's urban, right? And it is, uh, as far as I've noticed, even just on the news, even prior to meeting you, it's, it's kind of the epicenter in many ways of some of the racial tension. Yeah, very much. So, um, man, when everything went down, with all of the BLM stuff. um, I noticed Milwaukee coming up in the news a lot. Now Here you are, you're downtown, you're a pastor at a multi-ethnic church. Uh, What did that look like for you? And uh, what were some lessons that you learned? Because you know, out here, uh, out in the sticks, um, we're majority white. And we've actually done, we've done podcasts on race, you know, here at the Philippi Conversations Podcast, and it was good. But, you know, we don't always feel like we have as much perspective maybe on what it looks like to deal with and tackle some of these issues um, just simply because we live in Medford Grants Pass, you know, Southern Oregon. Yeah, what did that look like for you? What were some lessons that you learned? Um, and you guys you even had a multi-eth- multi-ethnic staff, right, in yeah. and, and, and a lot of ways. Maybe speak to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, when I joined staff in 2012, Epicos was, for the most part, a predominantly white church. Mostly college students, mostly white collar, kind of on the east side of Milwaukee in the University District, kind of a, I mean, a yuppie-ish sort of neighborhood. Yeah. And then when I planted my campus, we were we planted in more of a, a compromised neighborhood. I wouldn't say it was inner city, but it definitely was not suburb. It was was an urbanized kind of on the edge. And where our neighborhood was, uh, where my church was, was to the to the east of us was the Hispanic neighborhoods of Milwaukee. So there's about 120,000 Hispanics in Milwaukee County. Wow or the city of Milwaukee, actually. And and uh, and that and pretty much, Milwaukee, by the way, is uh, it's tied with Detroit each and every year for the most segregated city in America. So super segregated. So okay. in Milwaukee, the south side's uh, heavily Hispanic. The north side of Milwaukee is heavily, heavily African-American. And then you have pockets of Hmong immigrants around the city. And then the suburbs and the downtown areas, the, so the gentrified neighborhoods are predominantly right. white. And so my neighborhood, my, my church was kind of right at the epicenter of a bunch of these different neighborhoods. And uh, the first thing I learned uh, was... I just didn't know anything. You know, I had I I was I was born and raised in Montana. I mean, I had uh, I had friends, I had a handful of friends that were non-white, played football in college, had a handful of friends that were non-white, but lived pretty much in homogeny my whole life. Uh, pastored in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a uh, predominantly almost exclusively white community. So my first real exposure to living in a multi-ethnic community was my my time in Milwaukee. And I just remember watching people show up Sunday after Sunday and it was non-whites. And uh And a lot of white people, but a lot of not white people. And I thought, how do I shepherd these folks? Like I recognized I had a deficiency in my wisdom, my understanding. And though I didn't have this phrase yet internalized, what, the core value that rose up was simply this, and I've heard this said by someone else, this isn't my own phrase, but without proximity there will be no empathy. Hmm. A, a guy named um, Brian Loritz says that. He's a he's an author. His dad, Crawford Loritz, is kind of a, a trailblazer for crew and in ministry. Uh, he's, a, he's an African-American, just a brilliant guy.
0: If you're listening, you want to write that down. Yeah, That's good.
1: Yeah, uh, without proximity there will be no empathy. I didn't I did, hadn't coined that phrase but I just intrinsically knew like if I'm going to pastor and people who don't come from my background, don't look like me, who've got a different experience uh, you know, uh, especially coming from a minority culture. Um, I need to listen to them. And so what I started doing was just, I created a, a a quasi formal monthly gathering and I invited people that weren't white. I invited African American couples, Hispanic couples, biracial couples. I had a couple there that were among immigrants and there's, you know, 10, 12, 14 of us would gather and we'd just break, break bread. And we'd talk about Jesus, about church, about ministry and, and we developed trust. And so I just got to tell those people, you know, as I'm figuring out how to lead this church and shepherd this community, um, I'm going to say dumb things, culturally insensitive things, born out of ignorance, hopefully not born out of bigotry, um, call me to it, call me on it, correct me, rebuke me, you know? And I just think donning a posture of learning and and, and wanting to really understand the experience and the plight of others was, I mean, that, that was the first thing that has to be there.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's good. So maybe one other thing, um, we could talk about is, is, is how did you, how did you walk your church through that? Particularly the, the tension of the George Floyd thing, what did it look like from a pastoral seat to walk through that?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting in Milwaukee, as you said, it has been sort of the epicenter of the racial tensions and even just very recently in Kenosha, which is just outside of Milwaukee, all the riots, the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting and Jacob Blake, all that, that was all in our, in our area. Uh, back in 2016, when we, we planted our first campus in a predominantly uh, African-American neighborhood, we planted on August like 7th, 2016, and it was great. Like 700 people showed up to the launch. It was super like hallmark. Our pastor, a uh, pastor, a uh, Kurt was the first African American pastor on staff at our church, and the news came and they interviewed Kurt, and, and he had some really great things to say about hearing from not just the white church or the black church, but the church of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. A lot of buzz. Uh, five days later, uh, a guy named Seville Smith was shot and killed by a, a police officer in Milwaukee, down the street from our church. And uh, I don't know if you remember the news, but Milwaukee burned for the next two days. Uh, They they called them the Sherman Park riots or the Sherman Park uprising. And we had to drive down Sherman Park Boulevard and our church was on Sherman Park. So I was watching the news uh, like August 13th, 2016, five, six days after the launch of our, of our, our campus that was predominantly African-American. And uh, um, I'm watching the news unfold on CNN or Fox news or whatever. And there's cars burning, cop cars burning, gas stations burning. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like, really? We get one week without this, you know? But the reality was the tensions were always there. This was just a flashpoint, you know? And I think that's what I was learning. And my wife was sleeping, and she's the children's ministries director. She gets up the next morning for church, and I'm like, hey, Becky, just be very careful. Like, literally, the city burned. And she said, driving to work, she was driving past burned cars and rubble, and it was crazy. Mm -hmm. And so we had church the next week with uh, considerably less than 700 people. Uh, So that was the backdrop, you know, right? And So there had been tensions in Milwaukee going back into the 60s. There's lots of tensions. Um, There's just lots of reasons for that, legitimate reasons. So when you get the situations like Ahmaud Arbery and and George Floyd when those situations had risen up, Epicos was unique because the church I worked at, like you said, our staff was very multi-ethnic. We had, uh, I think, four African-American men on staff at that point on our pastoral team. And these dudes are like brothers, like my, my, some of my best friends. And we spent hours and hours and hours, months, weeks, years just talking about race and about the gospel and about the mm-hmm. unity of the gospel. But we never shared those conversations with our, converse, with our congregation. We talked oh, about man. racial issues, but we never exposed people to this sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. So as we're dealing with the aftermath of George Floyd and, and just the, you know, and it, it so quickly became divisive. It became a right thing and a left thing and a white thing and a black thing we realized this had great potential to not only divide our, our, our congregation, but just create, um, just create havoc within our community. And so what we did the first Sunday after uh, George Floyd's death is uh, me, I led a conversation with three of our African-American uh, camp, uh, pastors, and we just talked about the gospel, about mm-hmm. race, and about justice. Mm-hmm. And we just, what we said, our, our, our heart was, let's let our, con- our <laughs> congregation peer into this conversation about race, about what we've been having behind closed doors. And honestly, I just thought, I want our congregation to hear from the black voices among us. These are men who love Jesus, who have served him faithfully, who've shepherded our congregation, who've lived lives of obedience. And let them talk in a very gut level about what it's like to be black in America. And so we just, and in light of the gospel. So it was like an hour and 40 minute conversation. We made the decision because this was during, you know, exclusively streaming days of early COVID. We made the decision as a congregation in Milwaukee, like that's our service. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was literally what we streamed on Sunday. And we exposed our congregation to that conversation. Wow. And then we went into a series on race justice and the gospel and, you know, super hard, yeah. People got mad. People left. I bet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately it is become such a political thing that regardless of what your thoughts are on it, you know, it just even having the conversation yeah. can, can be, you know, we did a podcast. Like I said, we did a podcast on race and, uh, and, and it was funny how, I don't think we got any blowback from it, but, but it was just funny. And even putting it out there, I'm like, I know that this is just even bringing up the conversation in some ways feels like you're taking some kind of a political stance on it. But I was thinking while you were talking, it's interesting that race has always been in so many ways at the heart of uh, Christianity. I mean, so much of the new Testament, uh, or, yeah. or there is, I should say there's a lot of the new Testament that actually addresses racial tension between Jew and Gentile, uh, you know, and, and, yeah. and, even class tension between sort of the haves and the have nots, yeah. uh, which, you know, in Southern Oregon is probably more what we see. I mean, we have some multi-ethnicity. We have a, a fairly large Hispanic community, but but largely, I think in Southern Oregon, it's more of the, um, the socioeconomic divide that we see. Yeah. And in sort of driving past Hawthorne Park, sneering, it's, it's easy to do. And you see the garbage and the tents. And I mean, right now, when you get off the off ramp um, at the north exit of Medford, there's about 50 tents yep. and garbage everywhere. And, and it's hard to, to look at that and not feel this particular anger, uh, for your community, you know, but then also instantly feeling this particular like sense of like, well, gosh, like compassion too. And then not knowing what to do with that. And, you know, every, every, I guess my point is, you know, every generation, every people group has always had something like this. yeah. And the second we stop having the conversation and the second we stop actually asking the questions to each other in order to learn what it's like to be that person in that situation, I think is the second we stop learning and growing. And what was the statement you said again? It was, yeah, without
1: proximity, there will be no empathy. It's very easy. It's very easy to stay in my sanitized, self-contained world and peer across the divide at them. Yeah. And take my brush and and characterize them with one broad brushstroke. It's entirely different to sit in their home, Mm -hmm. to break bread, to learn their story, to sit in the ashes, to weep, to share life. When you do that, it, it, it forces you to put the, the broad brush strokes away yeah. and it forces you to enter into the nuance of relationship.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is good. Well, let's turn, let's turn the corner a little bit here in, in conversation. So I think one of the things that maybe is of particular interest to uh, those that might be listening, I know particular interest to, to me is balance, balance in work life, balance uh, with having children, balance in marriage and so, you know, you just moved out here um, to take on a new role, a role that in some ways probably even carries a heavier load in, 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 in some ways because your, your support staff has gotten smaller, you know, mm-hmm. um, and your role maybe has, has has become a little bit more of a leadership role in that you're kind of, you know, now you're... you're
1: yeah, the buck stops at my desk.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And so uh, having said that, you also have teenagers, mm-hmm. which you're kind of on the last few years of having them under your covering and um, what does that look like for you what are some things that that you employ um, and that you would give pastorally as advice to those that are just seeking to balance um, being there for their children and uh, being a dad, being a husband, or being a wife, but also having a vocation, also having yeah. a ministry, having a job. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot with this. So I didn't give you this question really yeah. in advance. So, um, but yeah, fire away on that, man. I'd love, to, I'd love to learn and glean from you in that.
1: You know, every pastor has a story to tell, but my story, th- there's a story that'll inform my answer. Um, early in ministry, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I worked at a church where the senior pastor failed. And uh, I watched him fail. It was like watching a car accident in slow motion. It was horrible. And, mm. I, and I was pa- I was a youth pastor to his kids, so I'm getting these behind the scenes glimpses. And it was just bad. It failed. I'll spare you the gory details. But I'm sitting at his house after it all fails. He's he's sitting in the ashes of his his once you know glorious ministry and life. And and I ask him, I'm like Lou, what went wrong? And it's so cliche, but it was so important for me to hear hear him say this to me. He's like, I forgot. The, the first flock God gave me to care for was my family. So cliche, you get that at every, you know, but he just forgot. He was building career, looking for significance in all these areas that don't really give significance. And in so doing, he abandoned the very things that were most important for him. And he abandoned his kids, emotionally, spiritually is at work longer than he should have been, wasn't there for his wife. And he just, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a sin, not even a sin of passivity, but a sin of abandonment. Yeah. And so I think about for me, and I, I certainly, uh, you know, in ministry or in any vocation, especially me as us as men, we, we it's so hard for us to, to find our significance apart from our vocation. It's so interwoven into our thinking that what we do is who we are and who we are is where our significance lies. And it's in our conversations with one another. We ask what we do. We talk about what we've done. Um, and I, feel like the, if that's our, if that's our primary mechanism, if that's our primary driver in life, uh, our kids and our spouses are going to take a back seat always. And so I've had to come to terms with that. Like I look early in my ministry, I had superimposed my very worldly ambitions and desires for significance. Uh, and I sort of tried to spiritualize them by joining ministry. And I could say, oh, in the name of Jesus, I can still be famous right. or be of significance. or People can admire me or I could be liked or loved or wanted. And all my tendencies of codependency entered into my ministry. And when you read the journals of my sweet, precious, patient wife early on in my ministry, it's like Paul's gone again. Paul's gone again. Paul's not home tonight. Yeah. Paul's gone, and uh, and it break, breaks my heart to think about that. Yeah, uh, I think in years I've I've learned what I've learned now is like, you know there's about a hundred things I've learned, but at the end of the day, just learning to embrace my limitations. It's like yeah. my, when I stand before God, he's not going to care about how much money I made. It's he's, like, the only question is, have you been faithful? And, and faithfulness begins with how I love my wife and how I love my kids and how I pursue a relationship with Jesus in the byproduct of faithfulness is vocation. And, 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 and so that's, that's, you know, where I'm at now And my, and I have a daughter who turns 20 in a couple of months. My son turned 18 yesterday. So I have two adult children. Oh, did he really? Wow. Yeah. I turned 18 yesterday. Crazy. And so me and Elijah had a crazy conversation yesterday. I was like, I was driving around with him. Um, Though I don't condone lottery, he wanted to buy a lottery on, on, on his his birthday. <laughs> hey, better
0: that than some other things you can buy. Yeah, yeah 18,
1: right. so he went. He, we didn't. He's like, Dad, how do you buy a lotto ticket? It's like, I don't know. I've never done it. So, so we went into this convenience store. We're like, How do you buy a lotto ticket? And this guy made it way too it, it, it just difficult. So we like gave him two bucks. just, I don't know. Give me something. So we got make a Mega million, So he's hoping he that's knows. funny. But we were driving around, and I'm like, and I was thinking about, you know, my I've, I've raised my daughters and my sons a little bit different. I mean, actually, considerably different. Maybe that's not a good thing, but I have, and I have one son, Eli. You know, and I said. I was driving with him yesterday and it hit me. I'm like, dude, from the time you were in your mother's womb, I knew my job was to create you to be a man a man who would fear God, who would serve him, who would walk in obedience, who who would uh, empty his life for the sake of the gospel. That's And from my first prayers over you when you were in your mother's womb to everything I've ever done for as a dad, every rite of passage I've crafted, every difficult conversation we've had, every moment of discipline, every moment of admiration, all of it has been designed so that I can hand you into the world as a man who has been discipled and equipped to serve God and give him glory. And it was just bizarre yesterday, and I said, I know 18 is just a chronological number. And I think he was a man before he turned 18. But I said, today's that day. It was a really weird. And I, and I, and I said the same thing to my daughter recently. I said, you know, I'm your dad and you're, you're called to, have, to honor me. I mean, that doesn't matter. That doesn't end when you become an adult. So I, I, I hope that you still you, you seek to honor me and your mother. But I'm no longer that authoritative, authoritarian in your life. And I'm like, I'm an older brother in Christ who can offer (laughs) wise counsel. And I really am desiring to see a shift in my relationship with my kids to that. And I, I, you know, I did some things really poorly as a dad. Um, I think we did some things okay as parents. I think, you know, I I recognize that, you know, you love, love is time. Yeah. And so, so we, I think even though I worked a lot, I was very conscientious along the way at, at carving out very specific moments in time and places where we got away and I looked my kids in the face and we talked about those difficult things and those important things. And
0: so, no, that's good. That's good stuff, man. I mean, it's, it's crazy for me to think about how quickly that's going to come because I got a, I got a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old boy and a three-year-old. Uh, girl, and I'm just thinking, gosh, she's already seven. Okay, so that's, yeah, before we know it. One of the things I was thinking about that I, that I just maybe p- piggyback on, I think one of the reasons it's so easy to um, withdraw from your family life and, and insert all of that in for, in, uh, all that energy into your work life for people, I know for me, is because, you know, your family really knows you, and the results sometimes come a little harder. Whereas at work, People don't know you as well, yep. and so it's almost kind of like an affair, you know, in a weird 100%. way. Like, we, you know, what, what what causes people to have affairs? Well, you know, their their wife or husband is no longer respects them or adores them the way that they want, and they find that in this new relationship. But the reality is that new relationship, they don't really know you, they don't really they don't really love you because they don't really know you. And if they really knew you, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be giving you the same kind of affection. And in the same way, you know, it's 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 funny sometimes. It's easier to do ministry at the church than it is to do it at home. You know, like sometimes my wife and I'll be talking through like troubleshooting through a particular issue with my kids. She's like, how do we deal with this? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. If I was at work, I'd be like, well, we would just do this and this and this, you yeah, know, yeah. and it, it's harder. It's literally harder. Ministry is harder in home than it is at work. And, and, and regardless of what your job is, you know, whether you're a pastor or not, like home is harder and because home knows you, and the relationships, they, they see you. They know the reality of you. And, and um, so if, if we can acknowledge that it's harder, then that means we actually should be spending more energy on it. You know? But I think the tendency, the escapist tendency, is just to spend all that energy at work because we reap what seem to be quicker rewards, right? Like it's easier to get that affirmation that I want from doing projects while at work. You know? But the problem is it builds that pattern of I'm doing things for affirmation. You know, I think for a lot of guys, they'd rather work 60 hours a week than spend five minutes of eye to eye time with their kids. I know for me, that's actually easier sometimes, Mm. which is weird, right? Like it's bizarre, but I think in many ways there's a more immediate, uh, what would seem to be kind of an affirmation that comes from working 60 hours a week at work. Because people will see, oh, you're doing a good job. Oh, look, look, look at the results, blah, blah, blah. Whereas my son, you know, he's not old enough really yet to acknowledge or thank me. And he may not for 20 years, you know, to, to just turn around and say, dad, thank you for doing that. Yep. You know, and so, but the, the, I think the muscle that, that we need to build in many ways in our core is is not doing things for the praises of man. And I think many, many ways, you know, we, we sacrifice our families for our vocation because we are in love with the praises of men at the core of it, not always, but oftentimes, you know, um, and for, I think for a lot of guys, I'm speaking to guys, I guess, cause I'm a guy, um, for a lot of guys, it's, it's a way to escape the guilt of not connecting with their kids. Well, I'm working so hard and so many hours that I can't connect with my kids because I'm just spending myself, but I have to, you know, and in many ways it's, it's, it's a way to, to relieve, relieve the guilt of not knowing how to connect you know with their kids and I, i've just been wrestling with all that you yep. know because you know you it's funny when you're a young man and you watch the movie about the proverbial father who's absent and doesn't connect with their kids and he's harsh with his son and he's just works too many hours and you look at that and you're like who does that like that's a no-brainer and yet here i am 31 years old and i find myself going you know that would be pretty easy to do yeah it would literally be pretty easy to work seven days a week 12 hours a day and never connect with my kids and in some weird strange way that feels easier. Uh, but then I kind of strip that back and I go, why is that easier? And it's, and it's the same reason it's easier to eat Cheetos than it is to eat a carrot. <laughs> it's a, it's an immediate, it's an immediate source of, of identity fulfillment. And look, look what I'm doing and look at, I'm successful and I'm moving my career forward and I'm blah, 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 blah. Whereas your kids, you may not see the fruit from that, from that for years. I mean, you're, you know, your son's 18. He may not turn around. Maybe he already has, but he may not turn around and say, dad, thank you. You did a good job for, he may, he may not do it for 10 years. You yeah. know, I, maybe I still haven't said that to my parents. Maybe I should, you know? And so the, the reward is not there quickly.
1: And I think it's, I think it's a thinly veiled, um, it's, it's, it's passivity thinly veiled. I think men, one of our defaults and you see it in the garden is a default to passivity. Yeah. And I think what we can say, it's, it's a, it's a, we, we trick ourselves into in, in, that. It's not passivity because we say, Oh my, no, I'm a provider and i need to make money i need to build career i need to provide for my family and we 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 say we ascribe great value to a nice home nice cars providing things for our kids and so we say oh uh, this is how I'm. This is how I'm leading by providing. And then what they, the back door to that is, is I'm finding significance in my work. But really, what I'm doing is I'm abdicating the most primary responsibility, which is spiritual leadership of my wife and my kids right. and being present in their lives. At the end of the day, your kids could care less if they drove a, a BMW or if they or if they rode a bike to school. They could care less if they lived in a, a three thousand square foot home or, or eight hundred square foot home. They want dad, right. and they want they want to be loved and pa- and parented and shepherded and led and and rebuked when need to be rebuked. And I just think it's like. Like we trick ourselves into thinking this is what I'm supposed to do when really it's just a backwards way to be passive.
0: Yeah, totally. No, I agree. And w- one of the things that's interesting too is I feel like Disney and uh, the, the, the Hollywood sphere is kind of picking up on this absentee father idea. Mm-hmm. And I've also noticed, just to play devil's advocate too, I've also kind of noticed that it's almost pendulum swinging the other way too, mm-hmm. where uh, you know, in the in every movie, the dad is choosing work over over the kid or whatever, and and the kid grows up twisted because you know, dad went to work instead. And there's also a sense in which, too, you know, I think um there is a point where I have to tell my kids, hey, I do have to go work, mm-hmm. like like i do have I do have a job, and I do need to work fifty hours a week, you know, and that's that's what's expected of me. and um and it's good for my kids, you know, to see me work. um but but at the same time, I, I think, which, which adds complexity to it. You know, we can't just say, well, I can never, I can never work a weekend or I can never work an evening. I mean, the the reality, that's not, that's not real life. And even in an agrarian in our society, you know, you'd go plant the fields, but you'd do it with your kids. And I think at the end of the day, I think we we go wrong in overemphasizing the amount of time as opposed to maybe the quality of time, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think for, for a lot of maybe moms or dads listening, they're like, yeah, well, I just can't, I can't spend buckets and buckets of time. But I'm like, I think your kids, even if you just gave them an hour of your full attention, like I've found that with my kids that like, if I just take one on a date or whatever, and I give them my full attention, like no cell phone out, Like my eyes are totally locked on on them and I'm listening to whatever, like (laughs) I took my daughter to the store last night and she was just for like 20 minutes. She was telling me about these books she's been reading and I don't have a clue what she's talking about. You know, I mean, I'm already the out of touch dad. I'm like, I don't understand (laughs) where she's getting at, but I'm just trying to listen, you know, and I'm just giving her my full attention. I'm asking her questions and stuff. And it's crazy how easy it is to fill the bucket you know, and I know my kids are little, it gets more complex as kids get older, obviously, but, but how easy it is to fill the bucket. And it's not so much about the amount of time I think as it is the quality of the time, you know, just giving them my focus um, and filling that up so that when there is a moment where I do have to say, Hey, look guys, I got to run out. I got a marital counseling issue or man, I really, I, I, I have to go set up for church tonight. I know we don't usually work on Saturday nights, but I need to do that. They're, they're good with that. You know, the same thing is true with my wife. You know, if I, if I really just invest that quality of time, I think the problem um, a lot of us are having is not that we're not spending enough time with our families. It's that the time we have is just sloppy time. All of our phones are out. There's a movie on. None of us are really watching yeah. it. We're half checked in. We're half checked out. You know, I mean, it, it's really just, it's just, we're never present, which is the word that I keep coming back to uh, that. God is keeps pressing kind of um, gently in my chest. Like Sam, be present. Yeah. Be present. Your family doesn't need you to work 20 hours a week so you can be with them every second of the day, they just need you to be present in the time that you have. And you have enough time to to be present. You know, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I think quality of time is a huge, is a huge deal.
1: Uh, our kids don't just need us in their space 24 seven. They need to have meaningful interaction with their moms and dads. Honestly is, is, uh, like to, I like to watch my kids compete. I like to watch them at school activities, but there are times there have been times when I sort of intentionally said, I can't make your game tonight because you need to know the world doesn't revolve around you. I mean, you're not the center of the universe. I love you. Uh, And I discovered with with the kids, especially when they get a little bit older, when your kids are younger, they kind of tend to just freely invite you into their private world because they Mm. don't really have a distinction between public, personal and private. Um, When your kids start going through those changes of life, suddenly they start to put their private world under lock and key. And where, where the nuts and bolts, the heavy lifting of parenting takes place is in your kid's private world, right? So we, we live in a public world. We go to church, we go to work, we're in community, we're at games. That's the public world. We have the public persona we put on. And then when we get home, we're behind closed doors with those we know and love and trust. That's our personal world where we're maybe a little bit more honest about who we are. We talk about life, about things, and, and we get to know the, the nuance and the quirkiness of, of, of personality. And when my kids started moving to teen years, I recognized they just weren't as open book as they once were and which is normal. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, my job as a dad is to parent them, but the heavy lifting of parenting is happening in the private world of my kids, but I can't force myself in there because that's, you know, that's tyranny or that's, that's a, I can't just go in there and just pile and they're not going to let you in. When I, when I go in and so I, I just start asking God, would you please just open opportunities? Yeah. Uh, would you give my kids a softened heart? Would you allow them to trust me or Becky enough to, to invite us into their private world? And then with delicacy and wisdom and gentleness, let us journey into that, that private place where we can begin to talk about matters of the heart, you know, and, and this is when your daughters are coming into age and they're wondering if they're pretty, they're dealing with the, the difficulties of betrayal or hurt friendships or broken hearts, or your son is struggling with sexual identity or, or with sexuality and issues of pornography and masturbation and, and bravado all that stuff starts to come up and it's terrifying as a dad, yeah. because it would be much easier to say, you know, I'm going to go to work. Let's just talk about the, right. the let's just talk about the, the Seahawks and I'm going to go to work. I don't want to talk about masturbation right. or about, uh, the, God forbid, you know, a friend that's got same sex attraction, or if you're struggling right. with sex, I mean, those are real issues of parenting yeah. and, and we could abdicate that choose passivity by talking about nothing and filling it with nothing. But I think, I think what we have to do as parents is just beg God to soften our kids' heart, to live in such a way to model a a safety so our kids know that I can go to dad or mom with this issue. And I discovered that the trick I learned with my kids was a bedtime was the time. Hmm. Uh, Bedtimes and car rides were the two times it really worked. I Hmm. thought if I go into my kids' room when the lights are off, we're not looking eye to eye, so there's not that threat and intimidation. There's a little yeah. bit of ambiguity. You, kind of, you can kind of hide in the dark a little bit. And, and my kids love to have their arms tickled or their backs massaged. Mm-hmm. So I sit in their room.
0: Your 18-year-old likes that. Still to, this, still to this day. <laughs> still to this day. Even my son, still to this oh, day. that's funny.
1: And uh, Elijah, if he hears me tell people that You guys he'll are out backpacking, me. and you're just like, tickle fight. But honestly, <laughs> but you, I created these spaces, and I'd, be, and I'd clothe them in prayer. Like, I'm just going to go tickle their arm. And so, you know, when you're watching your kids too, especially when they're teens or a little bit older, you see that when, you know, when they're troubled, yeah. you know, when there's internal turmoil. So you're like, God, what is going on in their heart? Would you please give me insight? I can't plow myself in there. So you got a tickle their arm. or I take them for a road trip where you're in the car and you're both looking at the road and you're not looking at each other. It's easier to bring up yeah. difficult issues. But the temptation parents is to just be like, you know what? I'm going to farm it out to the youth pastor. I'm going right. to farm it out to health class. I'm going to farm it out to, to culture. Don't do that. Pray that God gives you your kids give you an invitation into their private world and with gentleness, you step yeah. in there and you begin to just lovingly give them guidance and yeah. ask questions and don't jump to conclusions and be patient as you journey through those delicate right. things of life.
0: Yeah, that's great, man. That's great advice. Yeah, if if we leave the vacuum, something will fill it.
1: And there's a yeah. million voices right. right now that are seeking to fill it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, probably now more than ever, yep. you know, we we have people trying to shape uh, the minds of our, of our kids in Romans 12 too, you know, transform your mind, you know, it, it be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yeah. You know, I know, you know, it's so easy with having little kids to just go, Oh, they're just little and they're innocent or whatever. But so quickly that that goes away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, my daughter's seven. I'm like, okay, gosh, seven. She's already starting to think about certain things. I, I need to get ahead of this. I mean, and, and there's just, there's going to be questions and those questions may not even come. I mean, uh, they may not ask me but that doesn't mean they're not asking the questions. That's right. You know, um, and the way you respond
1: to their little failures now will determine whether or not you're safe for them to share their big failures later. Yeah, that's good. And, and learning to let your kids, letting your kids fail learning to sit in the messiness of their failures, their confusion, their heresy. I'm just like learning to give them a free space to, 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 to kick and punch and scratch and figure things out. Even the little things today is going to cultivate the soil that when they're wrestling with the big things tomorrow, you've modeled like, no, dad loves me. And he's willing to sit in the messiness with me. And I trust his counsel, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I would say too, you know, just, just the, the emphasis of gospeling our kids, as opposed to morality,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: being always like, it's just so easy to become the nagging voice of morality. you know, like, well, don't lie, son. You don't want to be a liar, you know? And yep. well, um, you know, don't do this. Cause that, that, that's, a, that's going to hurt you later in life. And, and, and those reasons just simply don't suffice. Yep. You know, I remember being a kid and those reasons just simply didn't, they didn't matter to me. Consequences just didn't connect. Yeah, they call it
1: me. moralistic therapeutic deism. Right. Yeah, God is good, therefore be good. It's like no, no, yeah. no. Like you are like sin is killing you. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And we have to put sin to death. Sin is put to right. death in one place. Right.
0: And I think one of the things my you know my wife does so well, and I just admire her in this, is that she takes every opportunity that there is a discipline issue for it to become a gospel moment. Yeah. And in every time that our kids um, sin, which which is often right, it, it's it's an opportunity to go, hey, you know what, this thing you just did. This is what it is. It's called sin, and this is this is an issue. Um, but but the issue isn't something that you can fix just by trying harder. Mm-hmm. This is a moment to remind them of their need for grace and the fact that Christ actually paid for that sin and that Christ actually has purchased them righteousness and that God loves them regardless of that. And he, you know what I mean? It's just, just to be able to gospel them, washing them in the gospel, you know, over and over again. If there's one thing I want my kids to know before they move out, it's the gospel. Yeah, you know, not uh, you know t- telling them what's right and wrong is important, but we have consciences. And a lot of that time, a lot of that's just intrinsic, you know, like that My my son doesn't need me to tell him that he's, uh, you know what he doesn't need to remind him what is right and wrong. Oftentimes he knows he needs me to remind him what to do with his wrong, what to do with his brokenness, what to do with, because I remember being a kid and just being frustrated with myself. Like I, I want to do what's right, but I don't want to do what's right. You know, and the gospel is the answer to that. It's it's you need a new heart. You know, you yeah. need a, you need greater affections. You need a greater desire. And it's
1: so hard as parents, like you tell yourself, I'm not going to model conditional love. I'm not. I'm not going to show more affection when they do good and less affection when they do bad. I'm not going to do that. But you do it. It's just yeah. some it's like you just try as hard as you to not do it. You, you end up falling into that pattern. Yeah. And so I find myself, you know, as we prayed the gospel with our kids, it's like, you know, just in as many thousands of ways I could say like. To, to push back against that transactional uh, understanding of God. Like, well, if I do good, God does good. If I right. do a, B and C, he'll do, he'll do D and E for me. It's like, right. like, no, we live our lives as an act of worship. You are yeah. freely and fully loved through the blood of Christ. Like right. you, there, he, he didn't love you any more or any less. You are fully and perfectly loved before you lifted a pinky. So the life that God has called you to invited to is a, is a, is a free life of worship given unto him in response to the, to the miracle of his love for you. So, good, so just saying it again and again yeah. and again and trying your best to model Model it as a dad is, is hard, but
0: yeah, totally. I think one of the one of the easy things that we, I know, I can tend to do is preaching legalism to my kids. Not legalism, like, hey, do good and you get to go to heaven. Yeah, I think I think most evangelical Christians know that that's not true, uh, but the the sneaky legalism, which is, hey, do good and you'll you'll have a good life. You know, hey, uh, don't have sex before marriage, and uh, you know you'll have great sex when you get married. You know, um, and and the reality is, is sometimes that's not true, and that's that's legalism. It's mm-hmm. it's if I do good things, God owes me, and and uh, in, in, I don't ever want to dangle the carrot uh of morality in front of my kids saying hey you know make good choices and and you'll really won't regret it later in life you know um hey you know son you're gonna you're gonna grow up one day and you're gonna meet your wife and you're gonna regret having done these things and you know um th- those can't be the impetus those can't be the reason yeah you know and, and
1: you get and you know it's it's when you're raising kids you have the idealistic version and that's not a bad to do, want what's best for your kids it's not bad right. to think man lord I want my I want my kids to be pure on their wedding day. Totally, I, that's a great desire, and that's a wonderful right. thing to want for right. your children. And I and I think there's also this tension of saying like, if somehow, some way, when your kids are outside of your if your eyes eyesight outside of your watchful care, they they mess up. Have you created a trap? Then there you've you are an unsafe place. If God forbid right. uh, they stumble, and I, I get it, it's a tension here. Uh, but but it's a very difficult place to walk with yeah. your kids, in, and I think in what we what we've tended to do, I think in just sort of marketing evangelicalism or Christianity is we oversell <laughs> and underdeliver your point, like oh if you if you stay a virgin until you're married, your sex is going to be amazing. It might not be. I mean, hopefully it will be God will honor that. Yes. And there'll be great blessings that come from that, but it's like, let's just be careful not to get caught into these very simplistic, uh, you know, cause and effect transactional understandings of how God works in the world around us and, Mm -hmm. and giving our kids the understanding of the, the the nuance of the Christian life, the beauty of grace, the, the, the the opportunity for confession and repentance and restoration and healing. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good. I I think the, the other, Maybe the other unintended consequences of that, of dangling morality as the reason for for right behavior, is you know, you know, the, the prodigal story, the the two sons, the prodigal story. Um, depending on which son your kid is, uh, that could either um, give make them prideful or it could crush them. Yeah. You know, if, if your kid is the the older son that loves it, loves to please you, loves to do jump through the hoops, loves to be the the compliant one then you're basically telling them, Hey, the way into my affection and the way into success is to just follow the rules and do the right things. And then you create this little Pharisee, this little legalist that, that believes that they deserve X, Y, and Z in life because they did all the right things. Um, and then the other, all, all the, all the while your other son, the other prodigal son is just crushed by their knowing that they're never going to be that mm-hmm. knowing that, that they are going to go in a, you know, that, that, that they can't ever possibly measure up to that, and so they they go, oh well, I can't, you know, I can't go the way that my mom or dad told me to because I'm just not that person. So, so clearly that message doesn't, it, it, it suits more my older brother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, either way, it, it becomes crushing, and that's why only only the gospel really is the answer that that our kids need because the gospel brings the older son in the prodigal story and the younger son into the same place which is a place of need yeah you know so um what i love about the prodigal story it's it's really the ultimate picture of the gospel-centered parent because you know for the the younger son that that took the money and ran and lived you know with the pigs and came back what do you see the you see him coming back and 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 like you said i want my kids to come back i think if they go off and, and make stupid choices i want them to know that they can come back not only into my arms, but they can come back to the arms of the father because Amen. he is a, a father of prodigals. Uh, but then also for the older son, uh, the gospel brings them to a place where they have to let go of their performance and let go of what they think they deserve. See, the older son thinks he deserves the affection more than the younger son, when in reality, the gospel isn't about deserving affection.
1: Yeah.
0: It's about undeserved affection. Yeah. And so I think we have to be careful maybe um, to, to recognize which which son in the prodigal story is my kid. I have a, I have one kid that I think is the older. I have two kids that I'm guessing maybe will be more the younger. I, I'm praying, you know, <laughs> that it doesn't have to be fully that. But, but I, I need to be just realizing, okay, when I give rules to this kid, she's going, all right, rules. Yeah, I like rules. Rules give me control. And then when I give rules to the other kids, it's pushing them away in some ways. And there's nothing wrong with rules, but you know, what's the why, what's the why for obedience, you know? And I think that's something we have to constantly be asking ourselves. What, what are we telling our kids? The reason for obedience is, you know,
1: it's an offering unto God. Yeah. It's an, off- it's, it's, it's to give him glory. Right. It's a, it's an offering to him. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's especially for the kid that leans toward towards the legalistic understanding. It's very difficult to wrap their mind around that. It's like, no, I'm yeah. like, I'm earning something. I'm achieving right. something. It's like, no, it's yeah. God's glory. That's great. Yeah yeah and yeah. i'm still figuring out my, my kids all three kids are different you know it's uh, yeah i you know a one uh one size fits all approach has not been our our experience in parenting and yeah. you're trying to remain uh, consistent in in sort of the larger concepts of parenting but customizing how you approach each because some of my kids need a kick in the butt and some of them need to be just loved and yeah. patiently brought to and uh, we figured it out
0: yeah totally well You know, Paul and I, we know everything because we're pastors. You know, (laughs) they always tell you, you know, you say you can, you can, you can always tell a pastor, but you can't tell a pastor anything. So the reality is we don't really know what we're doing either. You know more than I do because you, you've actually been down the field a little while. I'm just a
1: a couple steps from the trail. That's the only reason.
0: (laughs) But at the end of the day, man, I think, you know, having a robust trust for what God is doing in our kids' lives. And um, hopefully some of these tools are helpful for, for those of you listening out there. Um, I think, you know, balancing work life, balancing kids, um, living, living a gospel centered life and parenting in a gospel centered way is always important. And uh, Paul, what's um, just to wrap up here, what can we be praying for, for you and for heritage in this particular season? Um, Just for our listeners out there, like uh, what, what what can we, um, what can we partner in praying for you guys uh, with?
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, at this point, not, Coming to Heritage, landing in Medford, Oregon has there's been no surprises. You know, as I was coming here, who Heritage presented herself to be in the interview process is exactly what I've discovered. Amazing people, super gifted staff. Um, there's challenges because of the world around us and because of just you know history that has led up to this moment in time that we're we're trying to lead through. And so the prayer is that 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 uh, I would remain humble as a leader that uh we would be patient in as we as we journey forward as a staff as leadership as a church and that i mean as cliche as it sounds we would just we would, we would remain in the absolute center of god's will for his church yeah. for this time yeah
0: amen yeah i would ditto that for for philippi and you know really really just thankful for the partnership that our churches have yeah. and uh you know we I still see it as one family in yeah. so many ways and we're actually going to be doing a pulpit swap i think coming up here i want to say in february it's, yeah. on, it's in my, it's my calendar 14th, so i think maybe you'll valentine's be, day you'll be coming out here and preaching and I'll be uh, heading out there and that, that should be a good time. And yeah, we, uh, for those of you guys that don't know, we, we actually, every week um, I drive out to Medford and we sit down, Paul and I and, and the team and actually just talk about the passage for that week because we teach the same passage and that's been really awesome. It's just that amazing. collaboration. I always really appreciate it. So, all right, well, let me, uh, let me pray for you, Paul. Thanks for, for, for being here and driving out to grants pass and jumping in the studio. And hopefully this was beneficial. And yeah, let me just lift. Thank lift, you. Lift and, th- up.
1: and thanks for this amazing pour over.
0: Hey, mm-hmm. no no problem you know a little single origin of bolivian never hurt anybody man all right father thank you so much you got for paul and for uh becky and their kids and uh, man what a leap of faith i know it's been for them to to literally uproot and move all the way out here and i'm just so thankful that paul is ministering and laboring at heritage uh, i know they're really blessed to have him and I know he's blessed to have them and I just pray for fruit that are God. I pray for discipleship to happen. We pray for the lost to come to saving knowledge of uh, the Lordship of Christ. Uh, I pray, Lord, that um, as the weak... Uh, that the as the word is preached week in and week out, it would begin to do the work of transformation. Uh, Holy Spirit, you would be present in your church, working uh, and, and sanctifying and transforming. God, we pray the same for Philippi. Uh, thank you for this time. I pray that this material and this conversation uh, would be helpful and uh, Lord would um, be employed as we raise our kids and try to draw boundaries and try to tackle the issues of our day and all the things going on. Lord, so we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks again, Paul. Thank you, brother. Peace.